Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, where you'll get actionable tips and advice on major gifts, direct response fundraising, legacy giving, and much more from leading experts in the nonprofit sector. Now, here are your hosts of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, Andrew Olson and Roy Jones. Before we jump into today's content, I have something I want to share with you. In a recent 2019 CEO benchmark study conducted by the Predictive Index, CEOs disclosed that four out of five top challenges they face relate to talent optimization. To win consistently, you need confidence. Confidence that you've got the right people in the right roles, that they're deployed around the right projects, and that those projects are mapped to the right organizational objectives. And you need more than gut level confidence. You need data to back that up. But the truth is, the rapid pace of change is exhausting. People and systems are being pushed to the edge, and diversity, equality, and inclusion issues remain unresolved. In this age of empathy, we can do better. That's why I'm super excited about a new talent optimization platform that Ben Strout, founder of Velocity Strategy Solutions and a certified partner with the Predictive Index, is ready to show you. This technology-enabled, data-driven platform will give you an unfair advantage so you can win and succeed more. Visit peoplegetresults.com and use the code RAINMAKER to schedule your free personalized assessment and demo today. That's peoplegetresults.com, and don't forget to use the code RAINMAKER today. Hey, everyone. This is Andrew Olson with the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. I'm here again today with my co-host, Roy Jones. Hey, Roy, how are you? Hey, very good, Andrew. This is going to be a fun one. This is going to be a fun one. I love it when we're able to talk about major donors, philanthropists, and people that want to do transformational giving. We so often stay in this transactional space, and so I'm excited about, about what Chris is going to share today. Yeah, absolutely. So we are really honored to be here with Chris Putnam Walkerly. She's the, the founder of Putnam Consulting Group. Uh, she's the author of Delusional Altruism. And for the last 20 or, or so years, she's been advising wealthy families, ultra high net worth donors, foundations, Fortune 500s, and celebrity activists around their own personal and corporate philanthropy. She's helped over 100 philanthropists strategically allocate over half a billion dollars. That's huge impact. Chris, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited for this uh, interview. Yeah, we, we are as well. And let's get right to it. The first question is, what in the world is delusional altruism? <laughs> delusional altruism is essentially... Give me some of that. Delusional altruism is, you know, essentially all kinds of donors, philanthropists, leaders of foundations, corporate giving programs you know, genuinely want to make a difference, really want to change the world and have an impact on whatever issue or cause they care about, but often are getting in their own way. They're preventing themselves from achieving the impact they seek and frequently don't even realize this is happening. And so by delusional, I don't mean they're crazy. I just mean they hold on tightly to some misguided beliefs um, that are actually preventing and delaying them from achieving the impact that they want to have. What are some of the most common deeply held incorrect beliefs that, that you've experienced? Well, the first one, and perhaps the biggest one, and one that I'm sure will resonate with your listeners, is a scarcity mindset. And this scarcity mindset is surprising to many because you assume that you know donors, if nothing else, they have lots of money. And so you would assume that would with that would come an abundance mindset. But in fact, it's really a scarcity mindset. And it's this belief that by somehow maintaining a Spartan operation as yourself as the donor or, or foundation leader or for the nonprofit grantee, that if you maintain this kind of Spartan operation, you're therefore delivering more value to the communities that you care about and that you want to help. 
when exactly the opposite is true. An abundance mindset will really help yourself become the best philanthropist that you can be and will obviously help your nonprofits be as effective as they can be. And so, you know, the scarcity mindset shows up in a lot of ways. And I think, you know, importantly, donors actually need to think about how do they need to invest in themselves to be the most effective funder possible. So by that, I mean investing in your own learning, investing time and relationship building with nonprofit partners, investing in your own capacity and technology. I mean, I had a lot of clients during COVID that, you know, they couldn't, they wanted to make grants quickly in response, but couldn't because they were relying on checks that were locked up in their office, you know, and they had to like scurry home when all the lockdown orders were deployed and, and they literally could not get in the office and it caused them a lot of panic and stress. Obviously it caused a lot of panic and stress for the nonprofit partners, but you know, it seems simple, but even just taking the time to set up an ACH payment system was the kind of the make or break between getting money out the door quickly and not in response to a disaster. How, how, how many big gifts have been lost by the lack of a postage stamp, right? <laughs> it's crazy. It really is crazy. And, and it's funny, you know, I had a client, she became the CEO of this family foundation and it was basically her and one other employee. The other one employee was on vacation and she discovered that the checks were actually locked in a safe in the office and she didn't have the combination. <laughs> so, <laughs> so not only were they like locked up in a safe, but she actually couldn't access them until the employee came back from vacation. I mean, it's ridiculous. So anyway, but the scarcity mindset, it's this lack of investment. And I don't mean investing in like, you know, yachts and private jets. I mean, just investing in your own capacity so that you can give as much, you can be the most thoughtful, you know, very smart, strategic, building on existing needs, understanding community issues, knowing who the right partners are, understanding the different ways that you can help them. And then, of course, the scarcity mindset applies to nonprofits, you know, when funders refuse to spend money on overhead or tightly restrict grants, refuse to give cooperating support, only dole out grants in one-year increments when the, you know, the needs obviously require a multi-year strategy. And all these things really hold back the nonprofit from being successful because they don't have the resources they truly need to hire the right talent, to invest in their own strategy, their board development, their fund development capacity, all these things that are really important and they're not like nice to have, they're must haves. But there's the donor thinking that they're being impactful, but they're hamstringing the nonprofit. And so to me, that's how a scarcity mindset really is delusional. You know, like you think you're being, I don't know, prudent or being good stewards of your money by only doling out bits and pieces or, you know, one year at a time, but it's really ineffective. Wow. I keep thinking of the old adage, uh, given it shall be given unto you. I found some of the people that make those larger transformational gifts believe that <laughs> and, and live that and prove that out. Thoughts? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, it, it happens over and over again and it happens with, among small donors and it happens among some of the largest donors. And, you know, it's, what's interesting to me is too often, and this might be a surprise to your listeners, but foundations, you know, they kind of assume some of these practices, they assume these policies, there's really very little like legal requirement or, or, or you know, IRS requirements on a foundation. And there's some things you have to adhere to. The rest of it, quite frankly, is they make up, mm -hmm. right? Like they come up with, you know, this complex application process. They come up with 
uh, you know, extensive reporting requirements that take the nonprofit 40 hours to submit a report, which often go unread. They, they, they come up with, it takes us six months to make a grant, or we only uh, make funding decisions once a quarter, all this stuff. It's done with the best of intentions, right? They think they're putting in systems or, I don't know, having a clear five-step process or something, but they can undo all of that. And we actually saw a lot of funders rapidly drop these tightly held practices and beliefs in response to COVID. Oh, that's, you know, that's great to hear. I mean, that would, you know, my fear as you're speaking about this is that during the COVID crisis, they're making it harder. Uh, but you're saying many are loosening the restrictions. A lot are loosening the restrictions. I was really surprised. So this was things like taking existing grantees, you know, they'd already made the grant for some project and telling them, you know, you can now turn this into a core operating support grant, use the money however you want, like to navigate through this crisis, we trust you, which is really remarkable. Or, you know, if they were making new grants to respond to the crisis, they were making them as core operating support. Uh, quite a few funders just made more grants and didn't even require applications. They just called organizations, sometimes their past grantees, sometimes brand new organizations and said, you know, send us your bank information, like a payment's coming. Really, uh, a lot of them said, you know, don't worry about the final report. We will call you when this is all over and we'll interview you and we'll take the notes and write it for you. So really amazing stuff. And it's things that I think a lot of, you know, a lot of foundation leaders have been advocating for these practices, a lot of what's holding back is the trustees of the foundations who are more wary, weary of uh, some of these changes, but we're willing to make them in a crisis. So just to follow up on that, have, have you heard from any of the foundations that you're working with that they have any willingness or desire to, to make this a standard operating procedure now uh, and go away from those, those more restrictive processes? Or was that sort of hey, this is a crisis situation, we'll do it once, but don't ever ask us to do it again kind of thing. Yeah, that's a great question. I think funders will fall into three categories. One is they'll go back to the old ways. And I've seen this already. I was looking at a website of a community foundation and I forget the exact language, but it was something like, finally, we can go back to our previous grant making <laughs> guidelines or something. And I was like, no, don't do that. Um, like it was like they were so relieved to get back to normal. That's kind of how I, I had the sense I had from it. So there's the people that are going to go back to their old ways. Then I think they're another extreme are the people that were like, wow, that was easier than we thought. Like the world didn't stop spinning on its axis. The grantee didn't like run off to the Bahamas and abscond with the grant. Like that works. <laughs> right. And it was easier. Uh, and they will stick with it. Um, and then I think that in the middle ground will be people that, you know, will will hold on to some of the practices and not hold on to some of them. You know, they'll, and you know, I'm advising funders to to take stock, you know, maybe this month or uh, in the coming months and look back and say, well, what changes did we make? What did we do differently? Uh, what, what systems did we put in place, you know, last year that really helped us like ACH payments helped us get through this crisis? what do we wish we had done, you know, that we didn't, that would have helped us and, you know, what didn't work so well and what can we continue going forward? Because, you know, I think funders that adopted a lot of these new best practices really need to think about how not to slide back. If you don't consciously make a decision that says, Hey, core operating support worked. We've been meaning to try it for, you know, a decade. We did it. 
it worked. Maybe we won't do it for all of our grants going forward, but we can do it for a portion of them and make a decision so that they don't slide back and go into their old ways. You know, speaking of old ways, I'm just, you know, looking at uh, a few of the chapters uh, in, in your new book. And, you know, one of the things you caution against is moving too slowly. Walk me through, you know, and I guess there's probably two sides to that, you know, the, the current COVID situation and then pre-COVID, but uh, walk me through some of the, some of the uh, considerations there. Yeah, I mean, you know, that chapter starts, uh, it's called something like you respond too slowly and it starts with an analogy that funders are like sloths. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and if you've ever seen the movie, yeah, I say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will, and they, a lot of them will too. So I, yeah, my analogy is the movie Zootopia, <laughs> and if you if you've seen yeah. that movie, you know it's uh, a few animals going into the Bureau of Mammal Vehicles, a friend or something, and they walk in and they need information quickly so they can go rescue him, and they are horrified to discover that the mammal of the Bureau of Mammal Vehicles is staffed entirely by sloths. <laughs> and so they're, you know, so the sloth, of course, is moving excruciatingly slowly, and it takes like all day to get the information. And you know that happens well, too I've often. Got a meeting, I've got a meeting with the DMV tomorrow, so you're, <laughs> you're gonna give me nightmares tonight. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, I mean they move too slowly. It's things like taking a year or eighteen months to create a strategic plan, mm-hmm. and then you know after that eighteen months, you have it. Then they spend three months graphically designing it. Then they decide it needs to wait for board approval, which in the board meeting is in two months. So now you're at like, what, a year or a year and a half, two years, um, just to have your strategy, which like, meanwhile, the world has changed like once or twice. So it's, it's just, it's sort of ridiculous. Or, you know, taking nine months on average to make a grant or, you know, insisting that, you know, grants decisions can only be made when the family meets in person, which happens twice a year. And so if something happens, you know, in between, they can't make a grant because they can't be in person. I mean, God forbid, you know, what's happening right now when they can't physically meet. So there's just a lot of examples, you know, a lot of um, kind of unnecessary junk gets tossed in the way. You know, I was talking to one, it was actually an association of foundations that wanted to conduct strategic planning. And in order to do that, they felt they needed to go on this learning tour and schedule and organize all of these meetings all over their geographic footprint in order to kind of learn from their members and didn't recognize that they really probably already knew 80% of what they needed to know. They just needed to take, I don't know, half a day to document it. You know, this was a association that had been working with their members for years. Their board knew the the region represented the members, um, the staff had been working with the members and learning from them all along. But it's this kind of belief that like, we must go conduct research. We must, you know, put all these steps into place. We must convene everybody like six times. And really they just need to get clarity on what they need to do, what they want to do, where they are today, and what's the fastest way to get from point A to point B. I have to ask the question, can you go too fast? <laughs> you can go too fast. And I think there are times you need to go slow to go fast. So here's a couple examples. One is, you know, certainly if you as a funder are seeking to start funding in a brand new issue or topic or community about which you know nothing, then, you know, you need to take the time to do your research, understand the dynamics, the issues, the community, the data, the players, and decide, you know, what's the right approach? Where can you make a difference? Like it would be irresponsible just to kind of 
start funding, you know, indigenous communities when you don't know anything about indigenous communities, right? You could actually do a lot of harm uh, that way. So that's one example. And I think another is, you know, having to trust your gut, you know, we can do all the needs assessments and environmental scans and uh, learning tours we want, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, you often need to trust your own instincts. And I've worked with a couple funders, one in particular who, you know, really wanted to support this, this initiative to get it off the ground and wanted to find an intermediary organization to support to kind of manage the whole thing. And there was really kind of one organization that looked good on paper. You know what I mean? Like they were positioned for that. They had the right relationships. They wanted the contract, the grant to do this. But the foundation leader just like, there was something about the CEO, this organization that he just didn't trust and he couldn't put his finger on it, but he felt like rushed and pressured to get the grant, to get things moving and didn't know who else to support. And so I made the grant and then, you know, not surprisingly, like, I don't know, a year later, it all fell apart. You know, this CEO like publicly humiliated the, the funder in, in a right. public meeting and like couldn't deliver and, you know, and, and it really came back to not trusting his instinct. And so I, I do think that's really important. Chris, I've got another question for you. It's slightly changing topics at this point, but I'm curious to know particularly what you think advisors like yourself or estate planners, family office managers can do to help these, these particularly high net worth donors make a greater impact in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it comes with how you ask the questions. So I think what wealth advisors and family offices and anyone that's working with a donor is get them to focus on what they want to accomplish before focusing on how they want to accomplish it. So, you know, too often wealth advisors who, you know, their clients are these high net worth, ultra high net worth families or multifamily offices, you know, they have the ear of the donor because they're managing their money. And, and too often they jump to the how, meaning do you want to start a foundation or donor advised fund? Like, which nonprofits do you want to support? You know, how often does the family meet to make decisions? They focus on the transactional to Roy's point at the beginning and at the transformational. And I really believe that one of the best and easiest things that uh, advisor can do to help the donor is to ask what, meaning like, what do you want to accomplish? What kind of impact do you want to have on this issue or your community? What kind of philanthropic family do you want to be? What kind of philanthropic company do you want to be? and get them to focus on the what, because only when you know your objectives and what you want to accomplish, can you possibly figure out the how? Because there's lots of different hows, which are all fine. You know, it, you know it, a donor advised fund is a perfectly fine vehicle as is a foundation, as is a corporate giving program, but until you know what you want to accomplish, you don't know which is the right vehicle to get you there. Or, you know, until you know what you want to accomplish, you don't know really how the kind of nonprofit partner to support or the size of grant or other kinds of considerations. So follow up on that, and this is a little bit more on the relationship side of things. Often we will hear, particularly development officers, talk about the challenges that they have when they engage with uh, high-level philanthropists, and really around those wealth advisors or family office managers as gatekeepers right? And, and that yeah. they don't feel like they can build an authentic relationship with the donor because of that. Can you talk about some examples of when that works really well and maybe what some of the things are to, to look out for? 
Right. So just to clarify, so you're talking about when the nonprofit leader wants to receive funding from the donor, but is getting the, the wealth manager is getting in their way, getting in between them? Or at least that's the perception from the development staff. Yeah. Well, first I'll acknowledge that that probably is a real, a reality, okay. <laughs> not just a perception because, you know, the wealth managers are by kind of nature, they're sort of protective of their client, right? They're protective of that relationship. And, you know, there's a lot of competition for that relationship. And uh, there's a lot of concern that as wealth is passed to the next generation, that those wealth managers will lose the client because the, the relationship is with the you know, older adults, the mom and dad of the family or the grandparents, and they don't have as much relationship at times with the younger, you know, even adult children uh, who might be living elsewhere in the country or, you know, just aren't as, as involved. And so when the parents pass and money is transferred uh, and through inheritance, then those individuals kind of will go off and, you know, find their own advisor. So there's a lot of, I'll just say there's a lot of protection around protectiveness around those relationships. But I would say, you know, this is, I think the case for, uh, it's really a mindset that I think nonprofit leaders need to take on. And in many ways, it's an abundance mindset, which is recognizing that you're not asking for something, you're really giving something as a nonprofit leader. So you're not asking for a grant, you're offering a way for that donor to achieve their mission. You're helping that donor, you know, feel joy in the ways that they're able to make a difference and give back to the community. And you're helping the wealth advisor help their client in that way. So you're helping that wealth advisor add additional value by, uh, you know, you're having a developing a relationship with the donor is actually very important for all parties because through that relationship is how the donor will come to understand really what's going on, really the needs and how how you actually need help, uh, not just, you know, the, I, ideally as a nonprofit, you want to have a relationship with the donor where you can actually tell them what's really not working so that they can help you. And so, but it's really a mindset shift and I, you have to recognize that the donor might have a mission to uh, provide high quality early childhood education in your community, but they're not the ones providing the education, right? They're not the ones doing the work, like you, the nonprofit are. And so you are truly helping them meet their mission because they can't do it without you. And you kind of have to shift your mind and approach and, and recognize that those relationships are really important, you know, and they can be, they can be very helpful. So uh, a follow-up on that, and I, I hear this a lot as well, but I'm, I'm curious to know if your clients, what, what kind of conversations you have around the issue of what, some of these high uh, net worth philanthropists wish the nonprofit leaders that they're funding knew about how better to interact with them uh, and how better to engage them in the work that they're doing. Yeah, I can think of a couple things. One is to, you know, I think honestly in this COVID time, like, or during a time of crisis, that it's okay to reach out to your donors. I think early when this crisis hit, a lot of fund development professionals, nonprofit leaders questioned whether they should actually reach out to their donors for funding. Or are they offending them? Are they bothering them? Is it too crazy? Am I really quali Am I really kind of a, a, a top need right now, given all that's going on? And, you know, one thing for nonprofit leaders to know is that chances are your funders, your donors were quite busy during this time, and it was hard to reach them. Um, I know that's the case with most of my clients. But I think it's 
to know that it's okay to be persistent, to know that it's okay to reach out, you know, ask how you're doing, certainly, uh, and let them know what you, the nonprofit, are doing in response and how your needs have changed and how the donor can help you, and to be consistent about it. Maybe previously, it, you know, it took three outreaches to reach somebody. It now easily could take six or nine. You know, I, I was talking to a foundation leader in, in let's say, February about a possible project. And we were supposed to talk again in March and then COVID hit. And I probably followed up with her, I don't know, six or seven times and got zero response. And this is somebody who actually wanted to hire me uh, as a consultant. (laughs) And I knew she still had the need and I knew she was there. I just said, she's busy, but I'm going to keep on keeping on. Right. And so I did. And I finally talked to her last week and it was great. And she said, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. You know, I, I was MIA on you. I, but she was doing other things and I understand that. Um, so being, you know, so that it's okay to reach out to them. I'd also say, you know, recognize that your donor, that they want you to know that they are more than money. Mm. They have more to offer than funding and they might not be able to fund you for legitimate reasons, but they, they can, they can provide a lot more for you. For example, they can introduce you to other donors funders often have a bird's eye view on whatever issue you're working on because they're involved in like national philanthropy associations uh, on health or the arts or whatever the issue might be. So they often have a pretty good handle on what's happening nationally on that topic or could point you to some resources or connect you to, you know, national funders. That's that's really interesting, Chris, because I mean, what you're kind of saying is, is sometimes when they can't give, it's good to push them into more of a, even giving their advice, they're a volunteer for your organization, becoming an advocate in one way or another. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And, and so even, so approaching the conversation with, of course you want money. I mean, of course you need the money to, to continue your organization and the great work that you're doing, but you know, you also can approach it with what other ways can the funder help you? I mean, again, thinking about, the immediate response to COVID and, and applying for all the federal loans, how helpful a relationship with a banker would have been to a nonprofit leader, right? And often we don't have those relationships because everything's so transactional with banks, but I bet your donors do. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, you know, just saying, hey, we're at this bank, but we don't really know anyone there. Do you know anyone there that you could introduce us so we can navigate this federal loan process? Like that would be an easy introduction and in a way that they could be helpful to you. But there's a lot of examples like that, or they might even have their own, you know, knowledge or expertise. They may, may maybe they scale businesses and they can help you figure out how to scale your nonprofit. So just thinking about the donor as being more than money. And that, that really is thinking about volunteerism is not just something that should be directed at the regular donor, more transactional donor, lower dollar amounts. You're saying volunteerism needs to, needs to, needs to move upstream and be just as directed at, at, at high capacity givers. Yes, and you know, there's all different kinds of ways you can volunteer, and volunteering doesn't mean you know, you're on the board or you're showing up every Tuesday at nine. It can be the one-time ask, you know, right. literally, like, do you know anyone at First National Bank? Could you introduce me? And like, that's it, <laughs> that's all you're asking for, and that's an easy ask, or you know, we are looking for a conference room, or you know, whatever it might be, there's lots of ways that people can give their time, obviously their treasure and their talent. Because you really want to demonstrate that the relationship is not just about the money. Absolutely. And people will really appreciate, you know, that you're quite frankly savvy enough and 
confident enough and are, are developing like a peer relationship with your donor. I think when you do that, you actually um, generate more trust and confidence. And again, you're providing different ways that people can be helpful to you. So I, I want to just follow that with a, a quick question. This, this idea of volunteerism, I think, is, is really interesting. Although I, I talked with another uh, philanthropist a couple of days ago, uh, who's actually going to be on the show tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And one of the stories she tells is about being included onto a volunteer committee for an organization. She said it was pretty clear within the first one or two meetings that the committee uh, and the volunteerism was really just sort of a pro forma box that they checked so that they could say, we've had them into volunteer, now we can make an ask. Can you talk about how to do that right and not make it feel? Because obviously, yes, at some point they're gonna be asked probably, but how does an organization need to approach that differently so that it really is authentic and, and doesn't feel like just a step towards the next ask? I'd say by being upfront, transparent and honest, Um, There's nothing wrong. I mean, I was just working on a project where it was a partnership between the school district and several foundations and other organizations to try to support an educational related issue and um, and various arts organizations, in fact. And we wanted to, um, you know, engage a variety of stakeholders from the community in both a kind of a, a leadership governance level and also on a planning level. And we invited a few of the funders to join the planning team, which was really like a roll up your sleeves, like get to get in there and talk about like, how do we make this work and what do we need to do and what comes next and what's our plan gonna be? But, you know, we, we talked to the funders and said, hey, you know, we're gonna need money. Like this isn't gonna be free. And at some point we will be asking you for funding. And we also need your smarts. Like, you know about this issue we really value your thinking and we want you to be part of this. And they were like, sign me up. You know, that sounds great. And they were right there in there with us and then knew that there was an ask coming. So I think that's a much better approach because, you know, it's, it's the elephant in the room. You know, it's as a funder, you'd almost wonder why someone wasn't asking you for money if they didn't <laughs> ask for it at the end, really. Sure. And like, that's okay. That's one of the, that they want to help. You touched on just some different things that philanthropists may do in responding too slowly. Walk me, the, the, the other chapter that jumps out at me is, is when a funder asks the wrong questions. Mm-hmm. And I know you've touched on that a little bit, but, uh, but, but what are some of the wrong things that funders look at today that we somehow have to recalibrate uh, as an industry? Well, right. So I shared with you, they ask how before what. That's wrong question number one. Wrong question number two is, what's the best way to do this? And you might be surprised because that sounds like a perfectly reasonable question, right? You want to, of course, you want to do the best way. But sometimes once you've decided what you want to do, you actually can't immediately jump into what's the best way. I advise funders, and this would apply to a nonprofit as well, is to ask, what are all the ways we can do this? And really allow yourself to come up with all the possibilities of you know how you can do what you want to do and once you've brainstormed them and kind of kicked them around and vetted them only then can you really figure out what the best way is to go forward and often also people you know feel intimidated by that question like what's the best way to do it well I don't know or I might think I know but I'm afraid to you know raise my hand and share my answer because I might be wrong and so I think by identifying what the best way is it really allows for a more great idea generation, it allows for more diversity of opinion, and usually, you know, 
usually you come up with something that no one really thought of or, you know, is a much more innovative approach to accomplishing whatever it is than anyone would have thought of originally. Sure. I mean, it kind of makes me think, too, it, it, there are certain things that some nonprofits do really well and some things they don't do well, but everybody has a unique niche. And one of the things that jumps out at me and, and, and I, I face it, I have faced it working for small nonprofits and I have faced it now working with a much larger nonprofit. Sometimes I think funders hold the smaller nonprofits to a standard that you would normally hold for only a larger not-for-profit. You know, I'm just thinking about, you know, some of the guidelines uh, for administrative overhead or uh, some of the different uh, things that are on, on the traditional uh, uh, watchdog list, uh, you know, are, are really tailored towards big nonprofits. And if you're a small nonprofit, especially a community-based nonprofit, it's, it's, it, it's hard to be held to that standard. Um, what's the thinking of philanthropists in that regard these days? Well, I think, unfortunately, unfortunately, the default thought is, you know, what's the overhead rate? And the assumption that a low overhead rate to that exact point is that it's better. Mm-hmm. And it really is not often better. I mean, okay. I was just... If you're a smaller nonprofit, it... it... Well, a smaller nonprofit, it's going to kill you because right. you have, you know, you're barely making it, right? And then you have like $10,000 for overhead. Like, <laughs> you can't possibly, you can't possibly function that way. And I've, you know, I've heard funders say, well, well, we'll fund the program, but we won't fund the people. We won't pay for personnel costs for the program. So they'll fund a tutoring program. I can't make this up, but they won't fund the tutors. Or they'll fund an advocacy effort, but they won't fund the advocates to travel to the state capitol to you know, talk to the representatives. And so um, again, it's a scarcity mindset and it's delusional. But you know, I think it's kind of this like belief. I mean, I talked to a client, it was like her first foundation job and she wanted to identify certain kinds of organizations and she immediately went to, well, what's the overhead rate? Like that's really important. And she just assumed she was being careful, prudent, doing her due diligence. And I had to educate her and explain why that's a flawed, flawed thinking. There's so much more that goes into, you know, what's the organization trying to accomplish and what does that take to accomplish? But there is a lot of movement on this. There is a, are a lot of funders that are talking much more about the overhead myth and, you know, the real cost of funding, the true costs of a nonprofit and willingness to make, make that um, investment. In fact, there's a number of national foundations, the Ford Foundation, I believe David and Lucille Packard, the Hewlett Foundation and others that have made a commitment to increasing the overhead rates and really t- funding the full costs of what it takes to run a nonprofit organization. Wow, that's 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 big news. Mm-hmm. It is big news because these big funders, obviously, you know, some of the largest funders in the country, and and those decisions will signal to other funders, hey, this is an important thing that you need to focus on. Yeah, for sure. That's really interesting, and I'm glad to hear it. I think it's maybe later than we'd like, but it's a good sign. I, I want to shift gears here. We only have a, a few minutes left. I know that uh, we've, we've got a bit of a tight schedule, but I, I want to talk about and get your perspective on something else that's kind of brewing in the industry. And that's this, this idea that I, I think some hold that, that uh, high net worth individual donors and institutional funders tend to prefer giving to large established, what, what some might call primarily quote unquote white led organizations um, like universities and, and healthcare systems, and they overlook 
organizations that are smaller, um, typically more minority led, that might be um, situated in underserved communities, and that that is, is doing a disservice globally and, and nationally to particularly people of color. Can you share at all what your, your clients, uh, both individuals and, and uh, institutional funders, like, is this on their radar? What are they talking about if it, if it is a consideration? What, what are you hearing? Yeah, it's absolutely on their radar. I would say almost, you know, without a doubt, you know, in philanthropy, a lot of funders were responding rapidly and working tireless hours to respond to COVID. And, you know, it, it seemed almost as if they were kind of taking a breath and pausing for a minute. And then, you know, George Floyd was brutally murdered by the police. And then they, you know, then the next kind of wave of crisis ensued, even though, you know, that's just one of many people. He was just one of many people who were killed. And of course, this is, you know, 400 years of racism built, that it's built upon. But uh, so I would say there's a lot of, a lot of very intentional, thoughtful response happening among funders. Again, there's a range, right? There's people for funders for whom this is like a new issue and really thinking about like, am I racist? How do I be anti-racist? What does racial equity mean? Like this is all new conversation for them. So they're at, a, at one entry point or starting point. And then there's a lot of funders, I'm sure this is true in the nonprofit sector and others where you know, race, racial equity and inclusion and diversity have been talked about and been addressed pretty intensively for the past, I'd say at least five years in philanthropy. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of attention, thought, research. For the past couple of years, you really couldn't go to a philanthropy conference without like there being a diversity, equity and inclusion plenary session, conference track, you know, something going on, right? So, and there's also been a lot of capacity built, I would say in the past few years, kind of intermediary organizations like Borealis Philanthropy, the Ford Foundation, Kellogg Foundation, and, and others funding even like associations of foundations to focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion for their members. And a lot of funders have really been trying to figure out what this means and how do you not just support organizations to be more equitable and come up with more equitable solutions, but how do you operationalize that yourself as a funder and turn that lens on yourself? So I say that to say that we're in, a, we're in a much better place today than we would have been had this been happening five years, 10 years ago, in terms of philanthropy's ability, willingness to respond and recognition that this is really important and something that, that needs to be taken seriously. So, you know, yeah, there are a lot of, a lot of organizations that are taking a close look at their grantees and, under, and trying to understand, like, who are we funding? How many of our, what percent of our nonprofits are led by people of color? And, you know, we have, I mean, Case in point, I mean, the, the, the big uh, grant that Mackenzie Scott, uh, Jeff Bezos' ex-wife, allocated $1.7 billion at the end of July to 116 different organizations, about a third of whom were focusing on racial equity and others focusing on gender equity and equity for the LGBTQ community. So there's, I think, a significantly increased recognition that, that more needs to be done and, you know, absolutely, I think funders have defaulted toward more kind of larger, quote unquote, more stable organizations, often more white-led organizations, probably for a variety of reasons. One is if you're like more of a white-led funder, then those are the people that you know, right? And so there's a lot of its relationships. 
Uh, I think also there's a sense of security and trust. If it's a large, well-resourced organization that must be doing good work, they have the money to you know, hire fund development professionals. They have the money to hire evaluators to demonstrate results and they have money to hire communication staff, right? To share those results. And so it's almost like a cycle, right? The money go continues to feed those large well-resourced organizations and they continue to grow and suck up more resources. Meanwhile, there is smaller grassroots groups doing great work, often led by people of color who might not have the ability to, you know, develop those relationships or know how to navigate the kind of professional world of philanthropy and, and are getting left behind. And I, I hope that more funders recognize that, especially if you're trying to address issues facing communities of color, the, the value of having people who represent those communities, know those communities and have lived, have, you know, lived experience that, that represents the kinds of issues and problems and solutions that you're, you're trying to address. And that, you know, that's really important. Um, that should be high on, on the checklist of things that funders should be looking for. No, that's great. Thank you. Where did you have something else? No, no, just, I mean, it, it is exciting to, and I've said it so often over, over the, especially over the, the last month, but all the new things that is happening in the industry of philanthropy that we would have never addressed this soon if these crises hadn't come upon us. Mm -hmm. Think about the compounding effect of the pandemic and race relations in this country at the same time. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of, a lot of people to kind of rethink their priorities and move us in a much, much better trajectory. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I've been advising, you know, not just funders, but also nonprofit leaders to take advantage of this cri these crises and really seize them as opportunities to improve and change, let go of old practices that didn't, didn't really work anyway in quote unquote normal times and really seize this as an opportunity to become more agile and adaptive and more innovative and therefore have a greater impact. Yeah, for sure. Chris, uh, this has been a great conversation. Really appreciate you being here. How can, how can folks get in touch with you? If, if someone has questions, wants to follow up, what's the best way for people to reach you? Yeah, well, there's two things. One, I'd say certainly they could buy a copy of Delusional Altruism. Absolutely. And they can find that easily at delusionalaltruism.com, which has links to the various um, online retailers, which include uh, Amazon and Barnes & Noble, where they can purchase it. And that website also links to my own website, but they can also feel free to email me. My email is Chris with a K, Chris at Putnam-Consulting.com. Awesome. Thank you again so much for being here. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, brought to you exclusively by Newport One. Newport One can make a difference in your fundraising so that you can change the world. You can always reach us at podcast at newportone.com. Please take a moment to rate this episode on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate this episode, it will help more nonprofit leaders just like you to help find us and get the information that they need to raise more funds for their organization. Thanks again for listening today.